I'll be reading from Isaiah 33. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travelers ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, the thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell in the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ships can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place, or keep the sail spread out. They pray and spoil in abundance will be divided, even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I invite you please to pray with me. Father, you, um, as you speak to us, uh, you give us the most precious gift you could possibly give us, and that is yourself. Lord, we, we need you. We need 
to know you. We need uh, to be able to hear you this morning. And so, uh, like your people from many, many centuries ago, we cry out to you. We wait on you, asking for you to exalt yourself even among us now as we consider your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, let me start by trying to orient us a little bit to this passage. Um, let me just kind of make two observations that I, I hope will help us to kind of navigate and know what to do with some of this um, somewhat confusing text at first. And that is first to recognize that what you have here before you really are kind of two parts, two stanzas. Um, the first one is verses 1 through 6, and the progression is kind of a before and after. It starts with the way things are now, and then you get by the end of verse 6 to the way things will be. And then, beginning with verse 7, you have the very same progression, except this time it's expanded. It starts with the way things are now, which is not good, and it finally concludes with the way things will be. It's the same basic progression, except with more imagery. And that, that's just to help you orient us as we're kind of looking at this passage together. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. The second is I want us to understand that I think the very heart of this passage is really two truths. And these two truths are this. One is that you and I need God. Not, not just that we need things that God can do for us, not that we need things that God can give us. We need God. And the second truth that we see in this passage is that God is thoroughly committed to giving us exactly what we need by giving us His kingdom. So let me start with the first point of, of we need God. And I wonder as we begin if you have ever found yourself in a situation that is so anxiety-inducing, um, so confusing, so at times slow that you have found in the midst of it God transforming your prayers. I remember a number of years ago when our kids were young, Jennifer and I were in a situation where I knew there was kind of an end-by date for my job. At a certain date, the job was over. And we had um, no clarity about what was after that. There were no savings, no plans, no understanding of how we could pay rent or have food beyond the date when my job finished. And I remember kind of this, this kind of progression of the way praying happened. It, when, it was like maybe eight months out. It was kind of a vague prayer. Lord, please guide us. Please take care of us. Please show us what should happen next. As, as we got closer and things continued to be undefined, the prayers became a bit more specific. Lord, this interview, I pray, Lord, would it please go well? And if it be your will, maybe even in the next two weeks, would you please show us what happens next? And then nothing seemed to happen there. And at a certain point, it, it almost was this, I remember this sense of just resignation, of, of not giving up, but giving up a certain kind of control. And I found myself praying, Lord, I don't even actually know exactly what I want. Lord, I guess I'm just saying, Lord, whatever has you. What we want, Lord, is you. Have you ever found yourself kind of having your prayer changed in that way. And I ask because I think we see that very thing happening to the people of God here. So it begins with a, a depiction again of God's people brought down. And this is not new to us. We have seen this again and again in the last few weeks. When it begins talking about the destroyer 
and the traitor it's talking about is Syria. Remember, this massive nation that is attacking Judah and is threatening to destroy it. So God's people, we know, are brought low. They are filled with terror and anxiety and confusion, and they are waiting and and we see even if, if we go to verse 7, they're, they're in this time of chaos where, where people are weeping and they don't know what's going to happen. This, this is not new to us. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know this is where God's people are. They are being brought low. But what is new is what we see in verse 2. What we see in verse 2 is that their prayer has changed. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Do you remember last week um, where, where God himself said, The Lord waits to be gracious to you. He, he wants to bless those who wait for him, and it says that he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And here at last, what do we find? They are crying. It, it's like they have tried everything else. They are at wit's end, and when nothing else works, finally they cry out to God. I shouldn't say that this is the first time that they are praying to God. God himself says, you draw near to me with your lips, even though you're far from me with your hearts, which means they have prayed before. They have probably asked for help before. But this time the prayer is different. Do you notice what it was that they prayed for? Not just, Lord, take care of our problem. Not just, Lord, we want certain things. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We we wait for you. You be our arm. You be not just the one who saves us, you be our salvation. See, one of the, one of the repeated themes we see throughout the Old Testament of, of God's people's mistake is they want the gifts of God without the God who gives. Uh, they, they want protection but they don't want the protector. They, they want provision of good things, but they don't want the one who provides. They want to understand and have direction, but they don't want to deal with the source of wisdom. But here, their prayer is changing. Instead of praying, Lord, take away the pain and give us good things, they're praying, Lord, take away the distance between us and you and give us yourself. Have you ever found yourself beginning to pray like that? If you have, I want to suggest to you that you have been given in that moment a moment of clarity. So much of our lives feels like we're kind of walking in a mountain range where fog is perpetually around us. Where at best we can see a few trees and, and hopefully we can see enough of the path to know how to continue to walk down it, but there are these occasional moments where the mist kind of moves away and the sun 
breaks through and suddenly we see beyond and maybe we see this, this glorious mountain in front of us with the sun shining against the peak and suddenly we know where we are and we know where we're going and there is clarity and suffering at sometimes can do that for us. It can open our mind. It can open our hearts to recognize, Lord, what I want is you. Because that is what we want. That, that's what we see in this passage. I said that there's kind of a before and after logic. That the beginning is the hard part, but at the end we see things made right. And, and when that depiction of things being made right, when we find that in these verses, notice what's described. Look with me at verse 5. The Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Do you see this? It's not just the Lord is going to bring about righteousness and justice, you know, this picture of harmony where things are good, where everyone functions well. No, he will fill Zion. By being there, he will make things that way. And it's not just that he will bring about salvation, that he will give them wisdom. No, he will be the stability. He will be this treasury of salvation and wisdom. It is him that will be the answer. What is spoken of here succinctly is, is depicted more expansively in the second part. So, so we see at the second half of verse 17, it says, you will see a land that stretches afar. Just... Have you ever been in a place where you just feel spacious, like you have the whole world around you and you feel open? It's like that is what will happen when all things are made right. And he says um, in verse 18, you will see no more the insolent, sorry, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? You know, remember how we used to be afraid? What was that about? I can barely even remember. There's, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. And we see a couple more images. There's this image of a, a tent, a habitation, Jerusalem, Zion, a, and a habitation, an immovable tent for a feast. You know, we will have this massive party where everyone gets together to be able to enjoy a meal together, and this tent will be our shade, and there will be no fear of losing it. It will be secure and celebration. And then once again, we have another image, this time of Zion saying a city with a broad river. Like, like Egypt has the Nile, which means that you never have to worry about getting enough rain because there will always be enough for food, except unlike with the Nile, you don't ever have to worry about ships invading. It will be secure. It's, it's a picture of, of safety, of provision, of celebration. But, but notice what actually is being depicted. This is not speaking just of geography or of just tents. Verse 21, the Lord in majesty will be for us a place. It's talking not just about things, it's talking about God. When it's describing this, this future home of justice and righteousness and stability and hope and delight, it's not just speaking of a place, it's speaking of God that our home is in God, that what we most need, what our world most need, is not the things of God, but it is God himself. 
And, and perhaps the verse where this theme comes through most prominently is a part that I skipped over in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. The king here quite clearly is God. We see that because verse 21, it says, the Lord will be your judge, the Lord will be your king. The king we're talking about is God. What, what we have here is, is a connection to this theme, this mysterious theme that really is throughout Scripture that theologians talk about, the, the promise of the beatific vision, the, the beautiful vision of God. We began to see it maybe when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, and he is allowed in this hidden way to see just a part of God's greatness, and his face shines as a result. Jesus, when he is wanting to give hope to his people, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Paul speaks, when he's speaking of love, he says, Now we see as in a dim reflection, then we will see face to face. In Revelation, when it speaks of all things being made right, its kind of central line is, and they shall see God's face. The hope that Scripture offers us again and again is that in some way that maybe we don't even fully understand, we will encounter God in a way that we can describe as seeing Him. As, as knowing him in a way that we do not now with a kind of immediacy, of, a kind of intimacy. And, and what, what we are told here and elsewhere is that as we see God, we will find him beautiful. What, what does it mean to be beautiful? Think, think of things that we consider beautiful, like a, a sunset, maybe, or, or maybe the beauty of a face? What, what do we mean when we say it's beautiful? Perhaps we're saying something about proportions. There's a, there's a harmony. There's a rightness about the way things are. There is a goodness that we sense. But even more than that, we're talking about how our soul responds to it. There is a delight. There is a joy when we encounter beauty. Do you realize that our God is beautiful? There is an integrity about him, a harmony about him, a goodness about him that to see him and to see him truly is to be filled with the deepest, unimaginably greatest joy. For all eternity, our God has been happy. Father, Son, and Spirit have been eternally delighting in the wonderfulness of each other, enjoying each other's beauty, and then God made us to share in that delight, to bring us in that we also can gaze on the goodness of God and be happy. You quite literally were made to know God. You quite literally were made to gaze on the beauty of God, and until you understand that, you will never know what life is actually about. What they are crying out, what they are seeing, should be the heart of our cry when we see clearly, Lord God, we wait for you. Because you and I, we need God. Now, the second truth that we see also in this passage 
is that God responds to that cry by giving us the very thing we need, by giving us his kingdom. Uh, We spoke already of how there is a before and after progression. We've looked at the beginning, we've looked at the end. What I want us to consider now is the middle. What happens to, to bring about this world that is so full of God that there is this greatness of delight and beauty? And the answer is that God exalts himself. So we see that in in verse 3, at the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, and then even more clearly in verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. God says, you cry out to me for me to come. Here's what I will do. I will lift myself up. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it's quite clearly metaphoric because God doesn't have a body. He doesn't literally lift himself up. But, but the image is something that I think we can connect with. Uh, there's, a, there's different aspects to the idea of being lifted up. Part of it involves being able to see the greatness. You think of maybe the story of, of King Arthur and Excalibur, you know, when he takes the sword out of the stone, what does he do? He, he lifts it up, and everyone can see the greatness of this sword. That's part of what lifting up means. But even more than that, being lifted up is, is an image of authority. In that day, if you were an army that had the higher ground, you also were the army that had the power. And so because of that, the heights was associated with kingliness, with greatness. So when, when God is, is saying, I will lift myself up, he's saying, I will exert my authority. I will enable you to experience my kingly presence. And what this is suggesting is God is saying, Right now, that's not how things are. There is a sense that God's people are experiencing God's absence, as if he is like a king who has exiled himself. He has, in some ways, removed his influence. When his people say, we don't need you, God, to be our king, God, in some ways, has hidden himself, saying, I will give you what you want for the time being. And we could say something similar is true for us in this world where it seems at times that God's kingly presence is absent. But God says, when you cry out to me for me to come, I will come as your king. Because that's what, when we're saying you and I need God, it's not saying that we need some connection to a force. It's not saying that we need some connection to our best friend. For us, to be brought near to God means we experience his greatness as our king. This is why when Jesus teaches you to pray, what does he teach you to pray? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We are saying, God, we need you. We need you to exert your reign over all this world. We need you to be holy in our hearts and in our lives. We need you to be our king. And God says when his people cry out, we wait for you. He says, I will come and I will exalt myself and I will be your king. Now, now what does he mean by that when he, he promises to come in this way? Well, it begins by him filling the world with his goodness. We've already spoken a little bit about that when in verse 5 it talks about how he will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and salvation and wisdom and knowledge. All of his gifts he will give. Here's, here's one way of thinking. If I were to ask, what does it look like for us as a church 
to have God as our ruler and as our king. One of the ways we might speak of it is, is allowing the gifts that God has for us to be very present among us. So God gives us love for us to take hold of that and to love each other well. God gives us the gift of, of truth for us to take hold of the truth and let it be rich among us. God, God gives us compassion and kindness. As we take hold of his gifts, we allow him to rule over us. And that's part of what he's saying. He's saying, I will fill the world with my goodness. Everywhere you look, you will experience the good things that I have for it. But there is another piece we're looking at this passage that we also notice about when God exerts his authority. Because there's not just a filling, there also needs to be a removal. If this world is to be a world of perfect justice and harmony, that means injustice must disappear. For this world to be fully good, evil needs to be destroyed. For this world to be full of all that is of God, means all that is opposed to God must be removed. And, and so we also see that theme. When God says he will exalt us himself, it says that he will scatter the nations. Or, or verse 10, after he says, I will arise, he speaks, you will conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. He's speaking words of judgment specifically to Assyria. He's saying, when I exalt myself, I will destroy those who have attacked you and those who have hurt you. In fact, he's described in verse 14 as a consuming fire. Fire is destructive. That's what fire does, right? Sometimes it's, it's destructive in a terrible way. We think of like how houses can be burnt down by fire. But sometimes fire can be actually purifying. For, for gold to be purified, it must be subjected to incredible heat, over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, so that the impurities are removed by the fire. And God says that when I exalt myself is what I will do. I, as a consuming fire, will burn all that is evil, all that is opposed to what is good, all that is opposed to me, so that all that is left will be pure and beautiful. So, so in this passage, the progression is God's people finally cry out, Lord, we wait for you. And God says, I will come and I will exalt myself and I will fill the world with good and I will burn away all that is evil. And God's people say, oh, no. I mean, verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Do you see why they have reason to be afraid? Who are these people in Zion? They are the sinners. Sinners, by definition, is those who oppose God. Who are they? They are the godless. They are the God-avoiders. If God comes and he burns away all that is opposed to him, how in the world will they survive? This is the Isaiah 6 question, isn't it? Do you remember many weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 6, and Isaiah, he sees God, and he doesn't say, Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. No, in that moment, he says, I am undone because I am seeing the king and I am unclean. And how in the world can one who is unclean stand before the king who is so good? 
We've spoken about our tendency to avoid God, and I wonder if this is what's at the heart of it. There is this conviction maybe at the depths of our soul that we, to be able to preserve ourselves, have to remain disconnected from God. Because how in the world can we draw near to Him without being found wanting, without being undone? And so they ask, who can stand in the presence of this God? Who can dwell with a consuming fire? And, and, and here's how God responds. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions. Now, it is the easiest thing in the world, I think, to misunderstand this verse, and it's really, really important that we don't. I think the easiest thing for us to understand this as is to think that God is basically saying, you can stay with me as long as you're on your best behavior. But if you kind of move out of line, then forget about it. But that's a misreading. Because do you remember what we said God is going to do when he comes? It says he will fill Zion with righteousness. Zion, remember, Zion is the group of people right now who are crying out because they are sinners, because they are godless. And the promise is that God will fill Zion with righteousness. And, and that's actually an echo of the previous chapter. In chapter 32, it says, I will pour out my spirit from on high, and I will bring about justice and righteousness amongst my people. God's answer here is not, okay, as long as you're in your best behavior, he is saying no. I will make a way so that you can be with me. It will begin with forgiveness. If we were to jump to verse 24, we will, we, I mean, verse 25, we will see that the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. But it doesn't just end with forgiveness. God is saying, I will exalt myself not just in this world. I will exalt myself in your very being. In you, I will do the same thing I'm doing in the world. I will find all that is within you that needs to be destroyed. That egocentrism that you are trapped in, that, that pettiness that you notice in yourself but you can't do anything about, that, that pride, I will find it and I will burn it away and I will fill you with my gifts, with love and joy and peace and with patience. I will make you beautiful, and you will be able to live with me and enjoy my goodness. The promise of God here is that for those who cry out to him, when we draw near to him, we will not be destroyed. But like Isaiah, who was refined by that burning coal, we will be refined, and in that we will be made fully ourselves and fully beautiful. And what we are meant to understand in this passage is how committed God is to giving us what we need. We cry out when we see things most clearly. We cry out saying, God, we wait for you. We need you. We long to gaze on your beauty. And God says, I will do everything it takes to bring that about for you. I will exalt myself. I will destroy all that is evil. I will fill the world with good, and I will make you beautiful with me. We, we walk in fog. 
We, we walk so often forgetting anything except what's directly in front of us, so frequently forgetting what we are made for, what we need. We can be so fickle, but, but the gospel truth is that God does not walk in that fog, not in the way that we do. God, God stands outside of it, and he never forgets what you and I need, even when we do. And he never, ever stops seeking that good for us. Not from the moment he created, not until the moment all is recreated will he forget. And, and if we were to just study all of Scripture, we would see that again and again and again. And if there's one place more clearly that we see that in any other place, it is in the, the thing that we are celebrating in this season of Advent. God so loved the world that he gave what? Not, not just he gave forgiveness, although he did. Not just that he gave us life, although he did. It's that he gave us himself. He gave us his son. His son who would be named Jesus, which means the Lord is our salvation. And, and why did Jesus come? He came to be lifted up. Not lifted up in the way that we expected, but lifted up on the cross. And on the cross, he reigned as king, conquering death, destroying our guilt. And, and rising and ascending, being lifted up in heaven, he filled his people with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is God's commitment. That is what he is doing in the world. And what you need to understand is that is what God is doing in you. You might wonder sometimes why it doesn't seem like your prayers are being answered. They are. In everything you are asking for, your heart ultimately is crying out for God. And in everything in all of your life, God is giving you himself. And he will not rest until you are whole. And he invites you and he invites me, like his people here, to open ourselves up and to cry out saying, God, we wait for you. And so I invite us to do even that thing right now, to acknowledge before God that our hope is in Him and Him alone. As we've done the last few weeks, I invite us to collectively confess our sins, you speaking where the words are bold, and then in the middle we'll have a time of silence where we can deal quietly in our own hearts with God. Heavenly Father, your Son is our truest hope worthy of our undivided faith. He is the source of our deepest joy, and in him alone do we have peace together. Yet we confess that we so often look elsewhere for these things. We place our hope in the promises of this world, and we trust the things we feel we can control. We seek satisfaction and peace in the pleasures and the comforts of the moment, we confess to you our sinful pride.